Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're in our respective studios, and we have uh, three discrete time zones represented oh, yeah. here. Well, we're well spread around the world, across a continent, across an ocean. That's right. So, the East Coast of America, the West Coast of the North American continent, and Australia. Nice. And you're in Canberra, right, Simon? I am indeed. So, East Coast, Sydney time zone. Yep. Mm-hmm. Capital of Australia. My friend Richard Morris lives there. A little capital. Yep. Well, uh, just sit tight for uh, a minute or two, Simon, uh, while I talk to my friend Richard Campbell. Richard, what is new in Richard's world? Freshly vaccinated as of uh, last week. So Ah, me too. Uh, th- yeah. How, how was it? Because you've had it. Yeah. So, how was the vaccine? Did you have a strong reaction to it? I had zero reaction to it. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Like your body looked at it and went, I already know what this yeah, is. Yeah, I know Whatever. what that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had one night of chills and aches. Huh. And then uh, and then after about 24 hours, I was feeling fine. And yeah. I'm kind of glad for that. It's like, you know, it's doing something because your working. body's had a reaction. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like the past year you've had a cold or a flu or anything because we've all been wearing flipping masks and you don't get anything when you do that. I know. I know. I feel like Connecticut is sort of the anti-Florida right now. <laughs> you know, Florida, they, they, they're, they're pretending that this doesn't exist. Nobody's wearing masks. You know, everybody's out fine. in the sunshine. Everybody's fine. Whatever. So, we you talked know. about that book, The Eleven Americas, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, re, and that book really helped me in the sense that I understood why I connected so f- well with with New England, with that northeastern mm. part of the of the world, because it's that same kind of community first culture too, right? Uh, which is very prevalent in the Northwest, I think. Anyway, yes, but yeah, I agree. sort of the idea that there uh, there's eleven nations in yeah. in America because it, you come from all these different places, and those regional cultures still kind of exist. They certainly you know? do. Yeah. Uh, well, I have plenty of friends in Florida who. Um, who who just think that it doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, but here in Connecticut, we're even though look, even though I've been vaccinated, my daughters have been vaccinated, my mm-hmm. parents have been vaccinated. When we get together, the masks go on. You know, it's sort of uh, that's funny. It's a thing. Anyway, yeah, what's happening? What's happening uh, with you in June? Doing the we're doing the hybrid event. So Dev Intersection is back. It's going to be in Orlando because we all love Florida so much. Uh, as was back at the Swan Hotel. <laughs> he said this uh, thing. But, he, you know, it takes six months to plan a show. That's just reality. So, we've been working on this thing since December, January. And at that yeah. time, we had no idea what the event would look like. And right. so, we just planned for both online and in person. And as vaccination have progressed and, the, and generally the situation is getting better, better known and we are seeing more and more folks wanting to come in person, including right. speakers and and sponsors. Lots of great companies coming that want to be involved. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, the week of June seventh at the Swan Hotel in Orlando. Go to devintersection.com to register. We should put a banner ad up somewhere. I'm sure we should. Uh, so yeah. folks can find that. And uh, yeah, uh, you're going to be there. Yeah, I believe doing a few talks and yeah, and I'm I'm going to be there. We we got our friend Scott Hunter keynoting. He's going he's gonna to be there. Always going to be good. That's going to be great, yeah. And there's yeah. so much to talk about. We, you know, .NET 5 is mature and doing its thing. .NET 6 is coming. You know, they're on this crazy it's cadence. Coming. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I look at the reaction folks had to the show we did with Gerald talking about Maui. Yeah. I, I think Maui's going to be big, man. I like, do. This is, I do too. This is the revitalization of client side technologies. I'm paying a lot of attention to that. Well, they're making it so gosh darn easy for us now that you can't ignore it. Yeah. What an opportunity to rethink UI development. You know, that's that I think that's one of the interesting points they've got with this is yeah. to bring together the old bits and think new about it. So I'm excited. All right. Well, that's very good. Uh, let's move on to Better Know Framework. All right, man. What do you got? Richard, today I have a story. I like a story. It's a good story. So, as you know, I've been doing this weekly YouTube series called Blazer Train. Love it. Generously sponsored by our friends at DevExpress. Mm-hmm. And it was a great opportunity for me because they said, look, we don't want this to be a Dev Express show. We want this to be a Blazor show. You just do what you do and we're going to help spread the word because they want people to consider them when they think of Blazor tools. That's all they want out of it. Mindshare. And it's been great for me. I've done something like 46 shows now. Nice. And on show 45, I talked about gRPC. Remember Sean Wildermuth uh, talked to us about gRPC? I remember, yeah. Yeah. And how the G doesn't stand for Google. It's a recursive <laughs> acronym for gRPC remote procedure <laughs> calls. You keep telling yourself that, Google. Just yeah, keep whatever. telling yourself that. <laughs> whatever. But anyway, so um, it's a, a way that you can uh, do sort of like WCF, but... Without all the ceremony. Yeah. It, this is what Mark Rendell's working on with helping WCF people switch to gRPC. Totally. And yeah. in the meantime, you know, if you have an API layer that you're using standard REST protocols for, you might want to look at gRPC for performance reasons. Hmm. And so, in episode 45, I compared um, accessing the same records with the same service with gRPC versus Web API. Okay. And it turns out, you know, where Web API was taking about two seconds, gRPC was taking about 0.5 seconds. After you take out the cost of the internet part, but just the... Yeah, and just course, to Web test API it. still goes through the IIS stack, right? So, it's just Well, so just to test it, I went to, um, I, I published it to an Azure web app, right? Right. So, and I had very similar results. In fact, I had even better results. Better results on, on Web API. It was much faster. But, uh, you know, maybe a second. But gRPC was also much faster, like 200 hmm. milliseconds. I like that. Yeah. So, the next week, I decided, you know, I'm going to write a code generator because there's a lot of goo in there. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I don't want to have to write, you know. Just and it's to, repetitive, more relevant. It's totally right? it's repetitive. same thing every time. And not only that, but with gRPC, you have to ditch your models and use their message, the protobuf equivalent of a class, which is a message, to define right. your models because that those are the ones that go over the wire, over the gRPC wire, right? Mm -hmm. So, you could rename them, but now you've got to convert Right? So, the long and short of it is you can't just like take your models, your models and your services and put gRPC in between them. There, there's some significant programming that has to go on there. So, I wrote this code generator and then I, I sent uh, an email to Steve Sanderson. I told you this oh, wow. is a great story. 
Yeah. <laughs> I put it out on GitHub. And actually, it is our uh, Better Know Framework link. So if you go to 1737.pwop.me, or if you just search GitHub for gRPC generator, mm-hmm. you'll find it. So I sent this to Steve Sanderson. He said, wow, this is really cool. I'm including James to see if he has any comments on the, you know, the, the, the data types and serialization. James Newton King. Okay. So James Newton King gets back to me and he says, this is really cool, but if you're looking for a code first solution, try this community solution called protobuf-net.grpc. And I looked at it and it looked really cool and it is code first. In other words, you use your own models and your own services. You have to decorate them with some attributes and things like that. And then it just generates this stuff under the hood. You don't even need a protofile. Like it gets rid of a lot of the ceremony and it was really cool. So I got it working with Blazor, but it was like three times slower than what my manual code was and what my generator was spitting out. Now, the guy who runs this is a smart guy, and I Mm -hmm. expect that, you know, he'll keep up with it and he'll improve performance and he'll do whatever he needs to do to get it, to get it working. Um, but, uh, meantime, the code that you can generate with my generator is faster at, than this. And it is also a code first solution, meaning you use your services, you use your models, and it generates this stuff in between that renames the models with a prepended, uh, you know, prefix grpc underscore so that there's no collision. And then it does conversion between the two, uh, types, both coming and going from the service. And it's still really, really fast. So anyway, nice. grpc generator, that is your uh, better know framework for this cool. week. And an open source project on GitHub, all about Absolutely. It. I've been open sourcing a lot of my old code that uh, I have touched up and put, um, yeah, just just turned it over to the public. So I'll be spitting those out in the nice. weeks to come. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1735, one we did with Ian Cooper not that long ago. When we were yeah. talking a little bit about test-driven development and sort of thinking about it today. Very this popular been show. for quite a while. Well, and uh, yeah, lots of buzz on that one yeah. and uh, lots of comments in the Twitters and so forth and comments on the show as well. And certainly, I know we're talking more about testing today. So, uh, I thought this particular comment was interesting because it leads to our upcoming conversation. This is a comment from Dave who said, the last three jobs I've had, including my current one, we've had no unit testing at all. Uh. All the teams have had a human tester that ran through vari- the various products through documented test case. And here's a dirty little secret for you. It works. Yeah. We write, the testers test, and we ship, and we save a heap of time and money with no maintenance issues at all. But hey, you do your thing. You know, that it, you can't argue with success. I Yes. I find it fascinating the save money part just because physical testing takes time and takes people. And like, yeah. you know, there's a reason you do automation around that. That's right. It's pretty cost effective. I agree. Uh, you know, physical labor is expensive, even mm. when it's keystrokes on a keyboard like people's attention costs money right software's cheap in comparison and gets cheaper the more you use it that's right yeah so but i you know the big thing i could see from dave's comment more than anything is you know what it works testing that's the important part is make sure you're doing testing the alternative often is you're not doing testing right 
And or, let's face it, you're still doing testing. You're just doing it on your customers. Well, the thing is, I, I think a hybrid approach is smart. I think, you know, having something, and Simon's going to talk to this. I know he's, he's ready to <laughs> pounce on this one. But um, I think a hybrid approach works. You have to test before you commit, you know? You have to make yeah. sure that it works. You the do earlier, your- But that's the, old, that's the old Steve McConnell line. The sooner you catch an error- That's right. The easier and less expensive it is to fix. Absolutely. So, everything we do to catch those problems sooner. I mean, what do you think IntelliSense is about? So, it's you're- catching ru- problems so you, sooner. So, you test your new feature and then you run it through as many tests as you can- and then you check it in. So you get the best of both worlds. For sure. Yeah. So Dave, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go Buy, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing, man. My, my automatic reflex every time you stall like that is just Java. I know. <laughs> I was but, having a yeah. conversation with Jay, my brother, the other day. Speaking of Java, yeah. Speaking of Java, yeah. And I said, so knock, knock. He goes, who's there? Java. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure he said something obscene to you at that moment. No, he's he's not a zealot. He just likes- I know he's not a zealot, but I still would have thrown something at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that's that's that. Okay, well, it's my pleasure to uh, bring back on the show Mr. Simon Kropp. Uh, he is a software developer and part-time hacker. He contributes heavily to many and varied open-source projects. He believes in the open-source ethos of paying it forward. And he was also a, a very recent guest on Blazor Train. Welcome back, Simon. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, good to talk to you, sir. Yeah, I know all about Verify. I read that comment figuring I would get a reaction from you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, we are the manual versus automated testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. The, there's, there's so many low-hanging fruit in automated testing. It amazes me that people don't just throw in a few um, yeah. Even if it's just a full end-to-end integration test of making sure your web page renders and is responsive in an mm-hmm. integration environment, you know. Yeah, and and you and that you can log in and that you can you know just a little bit of selenium time just to walk through a basic you know sixty percent case workflow. Yeah. Come on, it, you'll never get to a hundred percent with those, but you can knock out eighty percent in relatively little effort. And, and the thing people seem to forget is, you know, people talk about how fragile tests are and it slows them down. Well, tests are like code. If it's fragile, it slows you down. Maybe the tests are done wrong. Maybe you can throw away yeah. those specific tests. You don't have to keep them. Um, maybe invest in different approaches to testing. Like, it, it's an evolving thing. If it slows you down, change how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Simon, you were the first guy that I talked to that actually used the word fragile with testing. And I always thought tests were just n- naturally fragile in general. And probably just because of the way I've always been doing it and the way that I was classically taught how to write tests. But uh, it wasn't until we started talking about Verify that the light bulb went off. And um, I, f- I found that, uh, well, I know the benefits of it, but um, maybe you can just tell Richard and everybody else what Verify is and why uh, it produces a less fragile testing environment. Yeah, well, t- taking a step back and defining what I mean by fragile, um, often when people 
write tests. You, you code in certain things in there about how the how the structure works, how it behaves, the the type of stuff that's returned. And I consider fragility to be when a test fails or needs to be changed, that isn't in relation to a bug. So, for instance, you've changed the structure of something you're returning or you've changed the, you know, the formats of your date times or various other things. Those things don't necessarily mean it's a bug, but it means that you need to spend time changing your test when it's still good production code. A simple example is just changing a property name on a model. Yep, exactly. Now, every test that touches that model has to be updated. Yeah. And strong type languages do help you mitigate some of that. But when you're talking about running tests against, as you mentioned earlier, Richard, Selenium, mm-hmm. you know, strong typing's out the window when you're talking cross-process effectively. Yeah. 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 And, and certainly Selenium, uh, by default, you can do better. Uh, is pretty fr- are pretty fragile tests. On the other hand, as soon as you run it, you know, creating them isn't that hard. It's not that different than creating, doing the test by hand. So as soon as you run, need to more, run it more than once, it starts to pay off. You just have to be prepared for when you make a substantial revision to a page. There are consequences to that. Some of the other fragilities I've noticed is when you're asserting things, you have date times, you have GUIDs, you have machine names, you have environment variables, even you know, where people are running the code from in stack trace affects how stack trace looks. So mm-hmm. all of those things means there's a certain level innate fragility in in doing asserts. You kind of have to manually plaster over them, ignore those values or kind of monkey patch things. So you so you change date time now to be some kind of factory so you can control it for, for purposes of unit testing. Um, all that stuff means it there's a, adds a certain level of friction to both creating tests, but also in maintaining them. Um, so you want to try and remove that friction from both creating and maintaining those tests to you know reduce that fragility. I, I think it's strange, Loop, and now I'm going into the Wayback Machine. This was years ago. We ended up redoing the test harnesses three times over a few years. And it was typically when a major version of the product changed, it broke the test so thoroughly that it was like it's easier to restart in some respects. Although the template, that approach of these are the things we want to look at was always valuable. But I also realized our testing got the, the third time was the charm. Like we kind of got to a place where even though we were still doing major revs, the bulk of the test sustained because we got smarter about testing those things that make sense that ultimately detect when you're going to have a major problem. Yeah. The, I, I guess a lot of companies go through that, but uh, many wouldn't make it three times round. They'd often just throw away the baby with the bathwater and... Sure. Well, if it's something you already dislike, you're looking for an excuse to get rid of it, and it failing you in any way is a great excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as uh, Carl mentioned, the Verify attempts to kind of, uh, you know, plaster over some of those fragilities in, in testing. And the, the reason why it's important to address that fragility is one of the problems with snapshot testing is that it is inherently more fragile than traditional asserts because hmm, you right, often so we've got to define snapshot testing first okay of all. so snapshot testing well, I'll, I'll define what my approach to it is so snapshot testing is when you take any object in memory and you serialize that and then 
you assert the serialized result of that object in memory. So that serialized result can be an image from a web page. It could be the HTML from a web page. It could be the JSON serialized blob of a, of a um, structure class in memory. So all of those things you serialize to disk. And then once it's on disk, you can you get a few benefits out of that. You can use a diff tool to compare them. You can check in that snapshot because it's now on disk. You can compare through just your eyeballs, having a look at what's changed between two different versions. And you also get a history of how that result has changed over time. And that's important because one of the problems with looking at asserts is line by line, it's hard to work out what you've, how you've changed what you're asserting over time. Right. Where if you actually look at it, the diff of a snapshot over time, you can see how it evolves very clearly between different versions. Right. You're not hmm. looking at uh, asserting that first name equals this and last name equals that and going through a hundred different properties and finding which one broke. Yeah. Yeah. Traditional asserts kind of mixes in multiple different requirements into a text-based codified format where often the scenario is better to have that the actual snapshot of what you want it to look like to be extracted from that C-sharp file. Because let's be fair, if you're trying to assert what an image looks like in C-sharp versus comparing two files on disk, one is a lot easier than another. Right, there's only a certain number of things you can actually assert in C sharp when you're looking at an image. Yeah, yeah, you kind of limited that. I was I immediately went to this idea of I've got three different clients for making an order, but if they all end up with the same blob of JSON that is an order, that's a pass. Yep, yep. So I th- I find that really interesting as an approach of it is does the is the output still meaningful and more saliently when it's different comparing the differences is incredibly valuable. Oh, it's different because we've asked for additional information now. So that's a that's a good fail in that sense. Yeah, so the one of the side effects of um, snapshot testing in terms of, you know, you are changing the structure is when you do add an extra property or you rename it, um, it's fragile in the fact that you are requested to accept the new change or you can basically say that's invalid and reject that change. And that gets into a bit of how Verify removes that fragility of approving files or rejecting them. So I probably should go into that a bit more. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I can, um, to fill in a little more backstory, one of the things that um, Verify does is the first time that you run it and there's no nothing to compare it to, it will actually save what it gets and that becomes the standard that it will compare to next time so the line of code that you need to, to verify is just verify or dot verify that's pretty much it most of the cases are that simple you remove all your asserts and you pass one or more um, instances directly into verify and it will it knows what to do with them and the majority of that is leveraged through uh, Newtonsoft JSON.net. So for any kind of class structure, it does a JSON serialization of that. And you can manipulate how that is outputted by customizing Newtonsoft however you want. 
So if I'm understanding what you're saying, then effectively, uh, you run the new version of the code. It takes these new snapshots. The snapshot's different from the old snapshot. That's technically a test failure. When you look at it, you see, actually, this was an intended outcome. So don't fail that. That's an accepted test. In other words, now that snapshot represents the new standard. So the process of failing test also generated the new pass. Correct. Yes. As opposed to the traditional way, which means now I have to go write a bunch of other code, revise a bunch of code to get to passing tests again, which is, I think, what frustrates people. It's like this code works as I intended. It just fails the test. Now I have to spend time fixing the test. And that is the epitome of fragility right there. Often people are, um, you know, one of the common scenarios is... Uh, if you if you're writing framework code and you want to assert what a exception looks like, and you've got this text string that's concatenating a bunch of different uh, values into one big string, and you're kind of trying to remember, oh, what does this look like? And the only way you can really get that string correct is to run it once, get the exception to throw, open in the debugger, copy the string, put that into an assert dot equals, and now you've got a pass. So with with verify, you just pass the exception instance directly into verify. And it will run that exception through the JSON serializer. You get a JSON representation of that on disk, and you just accept that change. Nice. Yeah, very nice. So the, <laughs> the other thing with Verify is there's um, when you are accepting a change to say either the first time or it's a difference in the result, uh, one of the levels of friction with a lot of snapshotting tools is you have to, the act of accepting a change, how do you uh, accept that a given new file that you've got is the correct result? And if you're doing that with multiple files at a single point in time, let's say you're taking a lot of snapshots of a web page into, so the HTML of a web page and you're writing all those to disk and you change the header of that web page, you might now have dozens of different files that need to be accepted. So Verify has tooling in place that allows you to accept things in bulk as well mm. or individually. Right. So there's kind of some tooling on top of that that allows you to remove that friction of a multi-file problem. And guys, hold that thought right there for just one moment while we pause for this very important message. You know, a few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What changed? Well, the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. Well, as for me, to keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. 
And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash .net and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T. Go to expressvpn.com slash .net to learn more. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. Hey. Hey. And uh, that's Simon Kropp, and he's talking about his open source uh, testing tool, Verify. And uh, the, the one of the coolest things that I saw that you demoed Verify to me, and one of the first questions I asked was, okay, so I have this class, and, you know, maybe there are certain things in it that aren't, are always going to change, you know, like a timestamp or something like that. How can I just ignore that one field or that one property of my class? Uh, because that's always going to change no matter when I, I execute it. So there's, Two levels there. For for a lot of a common scenarios like date times and GUIDs and a few others, uh, Verify recognizes those and will replace them with a placeholder. So when it's going through the serialization of your instance of a class, the first time it hits a certain date time, it'll store that in a dictionary and it will replace that, that date time with date time underscore one. And it does that. Out of the box. You don't have to configure that, right? Yeah, it does it out of the box. And it's another date time, and it looks it up in the dictionary. And if that date time is the same as one existing in the dictionary, it'll use the same token replace. Otherwise, it's date time two. And the same for GUIDs. So that has some interesting side effects. It allows you to still see where the same date time is used, still see where the same GUID is used, but it doesn't, it removes the fragility of those values changing. So if you're doing, say, entity framework kind of stuff and you're writing stuff to a, to the database and you're serializing those instances, what the GUID is, is less interesting than where the same GUID is reused in different locations. And it's the same for date time. So that stuff's out of the box. Um, for other things that are fragile, particular, um, e.g. what you said with a property. Uh, Verify has a whole bunch of helpers on top of Newtonsoft's library. So you can just say, for this type, ignore this member or ignore this type completely. So if you have a have an instance of person and you don't want to that you don't want that included as part of the serialization of a snapshot, you can exclude that type explicitly. So there's quite a lot of effort I've put into tweaking and extending Newtonsoft to be, you know, to produce output that is less fragile than traditional certs. And you can control this in a variety of different ways. You can do it at static configuration. So for your entire test suite, you can do it for a given test class. So for multiple tests inside one class, or you can do it at the individual test level. And just to be clear, when you say Newtonsoft, you mean JSON.net? Yeah, JSON.net, yeah. Yeah. I think it's always good to clarify. Yeah, it's it's the reason I've tried to use um, as an aside system text JSON a few times to do this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but JSON.net 
it's just over the years, it's just become so flexible in terms of the API extensibility. I agree. It, it's hard to go past it. Um, and when you're doing yeah. stuff like snapshot testing, you want that flexibility so people can tweak it in various different ways. Um, and the performance improvements of system JSON text don't really apply when you're you know, running unit tests. Like it just, you're not that scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's not, that's not the problem. Well, he works for Microsoft now, so presumably all of this will get better. Yeah. <laughs> just a matter of time. And eventually we may be able to switch over to system JSON, but um, we'll see how it goes. But, you well, know, he, he, I mean, he's de facto the standard, right? Like, I mean, that's what people use. But there's no rush. The, you know, JSON.net works great, and there's no does, reason not yeah. to use it. Um, another thing that really caught my eye about Verify is that, okay, this makes a lot of sense with code, but you've extended this snapshot testing idea and all of the great stuff that's around it that you've added to lots of other things. You mentioned images, for example, and static HTML, but, but we, we go to databases, we go where, where are all, I mean, you could just list like 20 different plugins that you've got yeah so when you when you apply that theory of you're just serializing to disk yeah um whether that whether you're serialized in text or serialized to binary the same Mm -hmm. approaches can be applied so for instance the approach i take for um i mean you were talking blazer but this applies to also any kind of web page that you're talking to so i've extended um selenium playwright and the other one is a third one. Anyway, all the headless browsers out there. So Verify has an extension for those headless browser tools where you can pass, you can start Selenium, say open this page and pass an instance of that page into Verify. And what Verify does, it knows about how Selenium works and it will give you a HTML snapshot to disk as well as an image snapshot to disk. So for a given page, you get two files. It actually creates a like a screen capture of what you would see in the browser. Yes, yeah, it screen captures the actual page. So that gets written to disk, and now you have multiple files for that one test. So that if the uh, if HTML changes, then you get you get to verify that change. Or if the image changes, you get to verify the image. And a side and effect is it's great for documentation, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually <laughs> done the exact same thing myself where I, in my docs, I point directly to results from Verify because they're snapshots of the actual running app. And it has this nice thing of you run through all your different scenarios. So, you know, the login scenario and this scenario and all these other scenarios for testing purposes. and it, Strangely enough, a lot of those scenarios map directly to what your doc scenarios are as well. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it also, as I mentioned before, it gives you this timeline of how the screens change over time as well. You can say, what did our logging experience look like 12 months ago? Compare those two images on Mm. in source control and you can have that difference in visualized. Yeah, comparing to snapshots, I mean, rather than... I've done this where we try to look at a year old version of source code to the current version of source code. It's really hard to interpret. In some ways, this using comparing snapshots, you're really comparing outputs rather than the, the, than the source. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't help you if you want to, you know, resurrect and run that that specific instance. It doesn't really speak to that, but um, yeah, it does help you 
you know, look at how those things have changed over time. Although if you were in a situation where you had some compiled code that you, you're still relying on, you want to rewrite it. The fact that you could take snapshots from the compiled app and then use that as your test platform to see that when you rewrite actually passes, you're doing the same, you're giving the same output. Yeah. So I've had um, some people use Verify for uh, source generators mm-hmm. so that you can actually, you know, again, you get all the benefits of snapshot testing the history, visualizing it, and also the diffing when it pops up. So as you're building mm-hmm. a, a source generator moving forward, you're not just verifying that it runs. You're verifying exactly what the given different inputs, how all those different scenarios look when you produce outputs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I think that that seems very powerful. I mean, the fact that you've done so much extension work, so the tools you're already using are going to, you could still use, you're just going to be better at them. Yeah. And that that approach that uh, Carl mentioned of, you know, plugging in different uh, frameworks. So, Mm -hmm. Some of them, some of them I think should exist. Some of them I've used, but you know, at the moment there's a WPF one, there's a Windows Forms one, there's all the headless mm-hmm. browser ones. All right, I have the list right here. Shall I? Shall I read it off? <laughs> if you want to, yeah. <laughs> all right, Angle Sharp. So Angle Sharp is uh, something that compares HTML, right? Uh, Angle Sharp is a replacement for HTML Agility Pack. So it's a whole okay. suite of tooling around HTML. Okay. Uh, ASPOS, ASPOS for verification of documents like PDF, DocX, Excel, PowerPoint via ASPOS. You have Blazor, of course, Verify.Blazor, which we talked about. Verify.Cosmos. There you go, Richard. Uh, for Cosmos DB. Yeah. Verify.Diffplex. Entity Framework, Headless Browsers using Playwright, Puppeteer, Sharp, or Selenium. And, mm-hmm. and Playwright is uh, the one that you actually implemented in Blazor Sliders, right? Yeah, that, that's my preferred one at the moment. I, I like it a bit, a bit more than Selenium. And then icsharpcode.decompiler, comparison of assemblies and types. And Image wow. Magic is one that you wrote that does the verification and comparison of images, right? Via magic.net. Then you have Image Sharp and Service Bus to verify end service bus text contexts. Um, FASH, which is P-H-A-S-H, comparison of documents via FASH. RavenDB, bit by bit. SQL Server, bit by bit. Uh, Verify.web, web bits. WinForms, <laughs> WinForms UIs. Xamarin UIs, XAML UIs, as you said before, WPF is in there. And then also there's a, what is specter.verify.extensions? So, the, have you heard of um, this, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he does a lot, a lot of uh, console extensions. So, there's specter.console and it does okay. these amazing things where you can render calendars to the console is and all these kind of amazing things. Patrick um, Svensson? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he didn't like the approach of how... of how Verify picks where to put the files, the snapshot files. Okay. He wanted he wanted an attribute-based approach where you say, for this test, I want you to output the snapshot to this directory. Nice. Um, so he extended Verify to override the naming convention for where snapshots go. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Just flexibility. Yeah. So, so back a step, a, a couple of things I should cover after you've read that list. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that, 
uh, you have is that when you're asserting certain types of documents or verifying certain types of documents, some don't map very well to either being compared um, by eye nor compared with a diff tool. So the easy exa- easiest example of that is a TIFF. You know, it's a multi-image document format. So if you have some code right. that's producing a TIFF, then it's difficult to write that to disk and run a diff tool over it. And it's also difficult to visualize the changes in it because you, if you open both files, you need to kind of page for each one synchronously and kind of try and eyeball the differences. So Verify has the concept of splitting a given binary out into multiple other document formats. So in the TIFF format, it takes in the TIFF, but it then will split out N PNGs, hmm. right? So it takes each, okay. each page of that TIFF and it outputs a PNG. So that allows you to, PNGs are much easier to, like at a file-by-file basis, to compare those differences in both a diff tool and a, and a UI. And the same goes for Word documents, PowerPoint slides, a lot of those multi-page documents. It makes it, It's much easier to slip them out into rendered images and then use those as the, as the snapshot instead. And again, it's that's very, very customizable and pluggable. So that approach is used for a lot of things. Yeah, I can see Yeah, many cases where stuff that would normally be fairly snapshot resistant because of that variability in, in each execution, sort of non-deterministic, you could decompose it to get more de- deterministic results. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to cover in there was um, we didn't quite talk about uh, fuzzy comparison. So you mentioned FASH mm. in there and also yeah. mm-hmm. um, Image Magic. So those two extensions are mainly about doing lossy comparisons of images because we do rely on PNGs quite a lot for any kind of a document formats or HTML formats. It makes right. it easy to convert to convert those to PNGs and, and compare them that way. But one of the problems you have is when moving between different machines, different operating systems, and maybe even very slight changes in what framework you have installed. Um, the tooling you'll use to create images can have very, very slight changes to them, as in, yeah. you know, uh, um, for instance, if you're doing WinForms testing and you're taking a snapshot of a Windows form, how Windows forms render on different operating systems right. is slightly different. So Image Magic and Fash are two approaches, that two out-of-a-box approaches for doing lossy image comparisons. So you can basically dial various knobs up and down and it will say, minor differences to images, it won't cause a failure for that. And is it just a pass-fail or does it give it like a percentage match? So what, how, what happens is, clever is that? you have a you have multiple dials to turn on those tools. Hmm. If mm-hmm. it fails, it's still a, a fail, but it will tell you what all those how far out each of those dials were. So if exists right. in image magic, if you're using you know it's got multiple it's got multiple different algorithms for comparing images. And it will say, you use this algorithm. You said you wanted to have a, you know, a 0.9 match and it had a, you know, it was out by 0.1. Effectively right. saying you can either change that knob to allow this to pass and rerun it or you can accept the new image. Right. Right. And another approach that we use is uh, often pairing the text output of a snapshot with the image output. So, for example, if you have, um, let's say we're 
verifying a web page, the output of a web page is two parts. It's for HTML and it's for image. So the image, we can turn on some lossy comparison so that it doesn't break between slight different browser rendering versions. Right. And, and when you say image, you're not talking about the images on the page so much as an image of the rendered page? Yes, a, a snapshot, a screenshot of that rendered page. Right. right. And that's that's so we have the HTML and we have the screenshot of the rendered page. So w- what happens is when those two are paired, if the text passes, as in you've got the same text and the image passes your lossy image comparison, that's a pass. Mm-hmm. But if the text fails, so let's say the HTML has actually changed, what it what it does is it'll do a binary comparison of the image after that. So that has an interesting side effect of keeping your image in sync with the HTML. It means if you have made a change that results in a change to the HTML, you're already being blocked because it's a failure, right? So it's already mm-hmm. you already have that friction of you know, two imi- two files have popped up and you, it's asking you to assert that they're okay. So the binary comparison when it, the HTML is changed allows you to double check that that image is actually correct now that the HTML is changed. Right. Yeah, so you add a Google tracker to the page. HTML is going to fail, but the render is going to be identical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing that you can do is in terms of the uh, the scrubbing aspect of making things less fragile. You mentioned a Google tracker. Um, mm-hmm. So Verify has um, extensions for scrubbing text with various different ways of doing it. So you can do it by file type. So you can put a scrubber on all HTML. And just just to be clear, scrubbing is ignoring, right? Yeah, it's, it's manipulating the output so that it's less fragile. Right. So often that means right. ignoring, as in you can completely remove lines from the output. Right. Um, often it means replacing with a different token so with that you can still visualize that. Right. Yeah, but if you change comments on a page, mm. you, you really don't want the test to fail. No. <laughs> no, but if you have... Uh, or you probably don't want If you have a weather widget that is actually using, you know, some service that is actually updating on each render... Right. You, you probably want that scrub between tests with a, with, a t- with a placeholder. Yeah, you don't want that included in your test. Yeah. Yeah, they, well, and I think we've, we've bumped against this idea of you want elements that are tokenized. Any error message where you have non-deterministic values coming in, like you, you don't want those values tested. You want a token there. The rest of it should be tested. Yeah, there's, there's some extensions for, if you're talking errors in terms of logging, there's some extensions to verify that can capture log statements as well. So mm-hmm. this is a concept called recording, and I'll, I'll walk you through the, the three that are out of a box. So the first one is logging, where you can just, at this before you run a method under test, you can say start, lo- start log tracking. And that will, for all the log statements that get written to uh, Microsoft logging, it will capture those. And then you can verify those log statements as part of your um, snapshot, mm-hmm. right? And that can be helpful in, if you're writing framework code and you want to make sure your log statements make sense to the user given a given test run. Mm-hmm. But it's also really really useful for debugging purposes because you can ad hoc turn on those and your snapshot gets the logging statements. You can debug something, make sure it's all working. 
And then once you're okay with it, you can turn that off again and the snapshot can go back to being just for without the logging. Interesting. I mean, you do want to verify that logging's being written, that that, that mechanism is working too. Yeah, you, you do, but you don't necessarily want that noise for every single test. No, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, you don't want it on all the time. Another case of another example of recording is HTTP recording. So in .NET, there's so you can actually plug into every single HTTP call statically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an API for that. So you can turn on HTTP recording, capture all the HTTP traffic that is done for a given method under test, and then include all those HTTP calls in your resulting stack trace. So, I mean, really useful diagnostic information. Well, it's it's not it's useful for when you want to assert that the HTTP messages that are going across the wire are correct, but you don't necessarily want to yeah. restructure your code under test to expose those things for the purposes purposes of testing. Right. So this allows you to turn that stuff on, capture it without needing to change the the code you're actually testing. So don't assert against it, but make sure it's there because it's often got some secrets as to why we're having problems yeah, too. Right. And as it, did the cookie come across? Are the extension types available? Like all the stuff that I have to go poke in a header for. Yeah, mm-hmm. ma- making sure that you know security um, cookies are being passed across right. the wire. And the third one that's supported out of the box is um, SQL tracking. So in the same way that you do HTTP, you can say start recording uh, SQL interactions. And then mm-hmm. when you assert, all that information is automatically included in the snapshot. So this one's interesting because you'd be amazed at you've got some code that does some entity framework calls. Mm-hmm. Um, people think they understand the kind of code that it produces, but without looking into you know turning on yeah. SQL tracking on the server, you don't really know. So this thing- Oh, DBA here. I've done that. What you're doing is shocking. Yeah. So what you do is <laughs> just, just have one line, say SQL recording- enable at the start of a test, run your code that talks to Entity Framework, and you'll get a wall of SQL statements. Yeah. Um, And it's really really helpful for, you know, firstly, grokking what happens under the covers, but also then performance tuning that. Yeah. If you want to know why the DBA looks like that, this is a way to know. (laughs) Yeah. You want to know what (laughs) level of gift you should get the DBA for Christmas or Hanukkah. Is this a box of chocolates (laughs) or a new car? I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the, the nice side effect of that is you then have, for that method call, you now have a a list of SQL files that you can actually have a conversation with your DBA about. Yeah. Yeah, you have your own trace, essentially, so you can compare and contrast. Are we really looking at the same thing? And if they're different, why are they different? And I think that's really powerful, Simon. What a huge – as someone who's been on both sides of that conversation and mediating that conversation across barbed wire, like the fact that we both have sources of data to compare against, that would be really, really powerful. And it is amazing just turning that one switch on. And the majority of cases when I've seen people do that, it's amazing how people – you know, suddenly they've got a new understanding of what's happening and it almost yeah. always results in changes in code. Yeah, every, almost every time. Once you have an awareness. Like I said jokingly, like that's why the DBA looks like that, but I'm not wrong, <laughs> yeah. right? They, because that's the look that anybody gets when you actually see 
what EF spews at a database. Yeah. And, the, the most- and, and again, I'm not saying EF's wrong. I'm just saying being sensitive to the reality yeah. of how a tool like that works and communicates with the database. Yeah. yeah, the most common one you see is, oh, I just wanted one column. Why is it returning all the columns? Mm. Yeah. Because you asked for, give me, a, give me the, the type. It's giving you the type with all the columns. So um, the thing that hits me, the more and more I look into Verify, is that this isn't just a testing tool. It's like a necessary tool for you to have in your arsenal to understand what's going on in your in your application and to make better code. It's that simple. Yeah, I see. I see very much see the diagnostic side of: Do you know what your application is doing? What it's up to? What it creates? Yeah, how it outputs. Uh, are there types of tests better served by other approaches than Verify? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good point. So, for starters, Verify is not meant to completely replace asserts. You can use mm-hmm. you can use them side by side. So, you we often have tests where you verify an instance of something or multiple instances of something, but you also sprinkle in a few asserts about various other things in there. Sure. Um, and a few of the common ones you have are. Um, uh, date ranges, right? If you if you mm-hmm. want to ensure that something is in a given date range, you you are effectively saying I expect this to change within this range, but I'm okay with it with being within this range. There's no way you can snapshot test that. Right? Yeah, that's not a snapshot no. testing. Um, another one is um, you know greater than and less than, um, uh, performance testing, right? You want to say that I want to assert that this method worked in under 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you can't snapshot that. That's not what the, this is for. Yep. Well, and it, I, again, I, I really appreciate you're not trying to take over the world here. It's like, here's a class of testing I do well. Yeah. Assert, the, the, I think the only reason people get in trouble with asserts is you just try to do things asserts aren't good at. You do everything with asserts. Right. This, there's what that I, that I only care about hammers and everything's going to be a hammer. It's a mistake. It's like there's a hammer and a screwdriver and a saw. They're all going to help you. Yeah. The, the other... There's one other one there, which is certain times you are asserting very small bits of information. So, you know, you want to assert that a method returned, you know, a number, 15, doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a certain amount of friction to snapshot testing in that the result of your test is now in a different file. Yeah. Right. So... The, the value- That's why the whole inline unit testing is so compelling, right? It's immediate. So, Mm -hmm. sometimes- the value of snapshot testing and that being in a different file is great enough that it makes it worthwhile, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And you kind of you kind of get a bit of understanding about how that works once you've used it in a few different scenarios. So you might the first time you use it, you might say, "Oh, it's fantastic, use it for everything," and then you wind back a few of those and say, "No, here's a few cases it doesn't really make sense to use it." Yeah, no, and I and I like that moderation part, right? In general. I'm I'm big on moderation, especially, especially moderation. moderation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know the thing is, but on you know at the end of the day, after you've been uh, spending your life doing asserts, and then you see something like verify, your ass hurts. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Now, really, we're going to wrap this up with a pun. I, that stuff works at the beginning, you man. Know, like, that's just what came to okay, mind. Okay, that's where we got to. I, I, I got. I've got one more thing I want to call out, though. Um, sure. For sure. So, there's a there's a tray tool that ships with Verify. Um, you, mm-hmm. you install it separately. It's a .NET tool. Um, whenever you 
use verify to um, assert anything. Uh, it does a in, it does a on computer communication to the tray tool, and that tray tool will track all of your failures and keep a list of them. So when you approve them, that the, the number of things goes down. When you more things fail, the number of things goes up, and you can manually mm. reopen diff tools, nice. bulk assert things, bulk discard things, and that tray tool breaks things down by solution as well. So if you have multiple different solutions that are using Verify, that tray tool tracks all of the current values that you have. It's like a nice little nice. dashboard right there. Yeah. Wow. You smart guy, Simon. <laughs> This is uh, amazing building on the stuff. Back of, building on the back of giants. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, but uh, you told me before that this is relatively new, Verify, right? When did when did you release it? Um, I think it's almost two years old now, but we kind mm. of lost a year there, so I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Lost a year. <laughs> the whole world lost a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, our alert listeners will, will pick this up and run with it and uh, give you more feedback than you can possibly handle. That would be awesome. Yeah, and if people have <laughs> any friction whatsoever with any parts of either snapshot testing or in general or, or verify, um, yeah, please let me know because I think it is valuable and it's more valuable when you remove friction from people using it. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Simon, thank you very much for uh, spending this hour with us. It's been great. Thank you, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a